Today on episode number 484 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, an introduction to neurodiversity for educators with Sarah Silverman. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so pleased today to welcome Sarah Silverman to the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. She's an educator focused on instructional design, disability studies, and educational technology. She currently teaches women's and gender studies and disability studies at University of Michigan, Dearborn. In the past, she's done instructional design and faculty development work with instructors and graduate students at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the University of California, Davis. She's also active in the movement to resist academic surveillance technologies, in particular remote proctoring, and authored an article on her institution's decision to resist adopting remote proctoring during the COVID-19 pandemic. Her interests in disability studies include neurodiversity-informed educational approaches, the ableist bases of educational technologies, and the intersection of feminist and disability-informed pedagogies. She also regularly presents talks and workshops to other educators on topics related to disability, neurodiversity, and educational technology. Sarah Silverman, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm also pleased to be here as a listener of the podcast. It's always nice when I get to talk to someone who does listen, because then it feels like we can kind of pick up a conversation that's been happening for a long time. We heard a little bit about you from your bio, but I'd love to have you share with the listeners just a little bit more about yourself. Great. Thank you. So my first name is Sarah, and I use she and her pronouns. And I have been an educator for about maybe six or seven years, if, if I include grad school in that. And I have been focusing on faculty development, instructional design, and more recently, disability studies. And so I I teach in lots of different kind of capacities, and that includes working with faculty, but also includes now teaching undergraduate students disability studies. And as I think will be relevant to our further conversation today, I'm also autistic. And this definitely informs a lot of my practice as an educator and also my research interests, which I'll just say include a lot of interests in accessibility and feminist pedagogies, as well as critiques of educational technology from a disability perspective. And today I'm coming to you from New Haven, Connecticut, which is the territory of the Wapinger and Quinnipiac peoples. And I am very excited to to get started with our talk. Yeah, I know... When I first became familiar with your work, I think most of the early times where I was aware of your name, my my husband actually asked me who I was interviewing today, and I said, Sarah Silverman, not the comedian. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> I'm sure you get that I, joke a lot, but I couldn't resist. I mean, you, 
<laughs> you weren't going to have to sit through it until I decided to share this story. Yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to say that due to the recent proliferation of social media platforms, like there's now Blue Sky and I'm, I'm getting on Twitter alternatives and stuff like that. If you happen to be the first person to claim Sarah Silverman, I, I just get a flood of messages intended for the comedian Sarah Silverman. Oh. And I uh, have, have to inform people that, that I'm not that person. So you told us a little bit about yourself, and and I, I have been so fortunate to be able to learn from you and and more of a conversational style. And then of course you link to things sometimes. So I w- I recognized your name probably for for at least two or three years now. But what I find fascinating in, in what I have learned from you so far is you seem to resist or want us to resist sort of this quick fix mentality that it's like five ways to teach neurodiverse students. And what I'm excited about having a conversation with you about today is before we get to that point, you know, there's lots of articles out there about that sort of thing. I know for you, an important piece of it has been that we need to learn our history. So would you share with us a little bit about what history is important for us to consider before we would ever even attempt to have any sorts of approaches, techniques to use in serving this population's broad set of needs? Yes. Yeah. And so thank you so much for starting with that because as you said, this is this is the thing that I focus on. And it, it goes hand in hand with the fact that I'm teaching disability studies a lot of the time to undergraduates. And disability studies is this kind of emergent, emerging field where we look at disability from a social perspective. And that represents a reorientation for a lot of people who are encountering it for the first time, especially if they're used to studying disability in a medicalized or sort of like governmental way. So like a lot of my students are in health professions. A lot of them are in schools of social work and health and human services and things like that. And so when we start looking at historical fights for disability rights and disability justice as a kind of first step that I take, instead of just saying like, here are some different disabilities that you might encounter. Sometimes people are a little bit surprised, but it's, it's along the same lines that I like to start talking about neurodiversity. So what I like to start with is the fact that neurodiversity as a concept and as a movement comes out of early online autistic communities. And in the 1990s, more generally, the internet was becoming available to the average consumer. And if anyone was an internet user at that time, you saw the emergence of message boards and chat rooms and listservs and things like that. And it was kind of a brand new way of forming community across much wider distances than had previously been possible. And I guess especially for those adept at using, figuring out how to use the, (laughs) the early internet. And so the term neurodiversity and the concept has multiple points of origin. I don't think that it's really so useful to say that any one person coined or came up with the term, but it definitely has roots in this early in this early autistic community. It probably originated on the independent living listserv, which was one of these early listservs, but was sort of discussed concurrently. And I can give you a link to put in show notes of a um, recent blog post by Martin Decker, who is one of one of these early autistic activists who kind of goes through the way that this term came to be shaped in these online message boards. 
So I think it's probably useful to just offer at this point a basic definition of neurodiversity that we can work with. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So a basic definition of neurodiversity is the range of brain functions and behavioral traits. So the range of different ways that the brain works, people think and behave regarded as part of a normal variation in the human population. So those those two parts is there is this diversity and kind of consequently, it is not considered pathological or a problem. It's just part of human diversity. So the way I like to explain this before we talk about any politics or movement associated with neurodiversity is that it's a fact and we're all part of it. So we're not necessarily at this point just defining the term talking about individual people's different types of neurodivergence or conditions or diagnoses, but every single person in the world is part of part of neurodiversity to the extent that it just describes the existing range of the way that people think and behave. And the idea of neurodiversity is partially based on this general idea that's akin to biological diversity, but it is also kind of working against the concept of normality. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Dr. Nick Walker, who's an autistic psychologist and uses she, her pronouns, says that there's no normal state of the human brain or human mind any more than there's one normal race, ethnicity, gender, or culture. And so what she's drawing on there is you can see how when one type of identity or one aspect of diversity is viewed as normal, then that naturally subordinates the other elements of diversity that are present. And so I think that's the first thing that I like people to understand is that neurodiversity comes out of autistic community and autistic self-advocacy. I'll just say one thing about self-advocacy is this is something that applies throughout sort of disability community and disability rights. And it means the, the ability or the action of understanding one's own needs and advocating for them. Kind of in kind of in the name, self-advocacy. And the reason I think this is relevant is that if we're talking about neurodiversity, it comes from this, comes from this idea that autism isn't a disorder, but a difference. And I think people are pretty familiar with that idea nowadays, but I think it's important to remember how recently it emerged and started to gain some traction in the general conversation. So autistic advocates say that we should focus on acceptance rather than any cure that could be out there for autism. There's not even really a known biological basis for autism. It would be shocking to think that there could be a cure, which is what some people who are against the idea of neurodiversity would like. But autistic self-advocacy overall opposes abusive treatments and lots of types of behavioral modification therapy. And the key element is that it's led by autistic people themselves. It used to be that the entire public conversation about autism was controlled by the medical establishment. So doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, and the parents of autistic children and people more generally. So the autistic self-advocacy community from which neurodiversity comes is one that's really focused on returning control of the conversation about needs and supports to the people who are using them. Nothing about us um, 
<laughs> without, without us. us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that whole idea. I'm I'm fascinated by this idea because because the human brain, of course, wants to sort things, wants to categorize things, and that can be both helpful and not helpful at all. I know for myself, as I reflect on my teaching. There are times in which the labels that I my brain may be tempted to place on people can be helpful to me, just mm-hmm. just to have some sort of a range of of what might meet a particular individual's needs, and then I I see so quickly the limitations of the ways in which my brain may wish to sort things out. And one one thing I'd I'd love to hear a bit from you about is that there that we used to have this term of Asperger's that I know is not used anymore as a diagnosis and also can be seen as offensive, I believe, if, if that's the case. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to tell you what, what I know about that. Yeah, please. So uh, listeners may be familiar with the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the catalog of all the different psychological, psychiatric diagnoses that exist. And so there used to be sort of separate categories of different types of Asperger's was considered a type of autism and had some slightly different different characteristics. It's named after this guy, Hans Asperger, who did a lot of initial research on autistic children. And I, it seems to me that recent research has kind of shown him to be, if, if not an, a Nazi collaborator, a Nazi sympathizer, um, and so that's one of the reasons I think people are drawn away from using the Asperger's label. But the other reason, much more broadly, is that autism is increasingly understood as a spectrum condition and experience, and that the the word autism is a umbrella term for the experiences of many different people who share some certain characteristics. I think the primary debate is that at Asperger's was often separated because a lot of people who had been diagnosed with Asperger's didn't necessarily have some of the developmental delays or communication differences that other autistic people had. It was sort of this idea of somebody who's maybe hyperverbal, and it was associated with oftentimes intelligence or being a precocious child. And the autistic community wanted to move away from sort of thinking about those factors and more about like shared shared experiences and by the time that you know I I'll share that I so I've been formally diagnosed with with autism and by the time that I did that Asperger's was no longer being used and there were a couple of different levels of autism spectrum that were that were being used so it kind of got replaced by this subcategory all of this is to say is this is very relevant in terms of diagnosis, but I think it's a little bit less relevant in terms of neurodiversity activism. And that's kind of where I wanted wanted to go. Mm, yeah. Which is which is that it's not very helpful to think about neurodiversity or neurodivergence as one particular group of people. It's more of a coalition of mm. many different people. And so I, I've described how the, the concept has roots in the autistic community, but we now think about neurodiversity as including potentially autistic people, people with ADHD, people with learning disabilities, people with dyslexia, sometimes Tourette's is included. It also extends to oftentimes 
people with mental illnesses or other mental disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And this kind of shows us an overlap between neurodiversity as a movement and also the mental health system survivors, psychiatric survivors movement, which have a lot of overlaps and also some points of tension. But that it, the, the most important thing is neurodiversity is a huge umbrella concept. So what I think what unites people who identify with neurodiversity is their experience of neurodivergence. So I, if you want, I can tell I can tell you a little bit about the history of the idea of neurotypicality and neurodivergence as well. That's exactly where I was going to ask you to head next. So I, I know that it is important for us to distinguish and, and ex- explore some of the ways in which these terms are contested, the neurotypical and neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely would love to hear you share about that. Yeah. So I, I want to share a little bit about that because one of the things that's kind of motivated me to start teaching more and more publicly about neurodiversity is I I increasingly see the terms neurotypical and neurodivergent being used kind of as synonyms for someone with a diagnosis and someone who's, quote, normal, right? And I think you, you talked a bit more about how you talked a bit earlier about how your brain kind of like goes in certain directions, like we're trained to think in certain ways. And I think a lot of the time nowadays, people are always looking for a euphemism for something that they think is uncomfortable or stigmatized. So a lot of people tell me, isn't neurodivergent just another word for autism or ADHD? And I say, I don't think that it is. So I'll explain, I'll explain a little bit about why. So the, the first thing I think is useful to know is that the ideas of normal and typical have their own kind of history associated with the history of statistics and eugenics. And so most people who have studied the natural or social sciences formally will have encountered the science of statistics before and will and will have heard of the normal distribution. It's like one of the important things to remember about the history of statistics is that even though you could say it's being used in pretty benign ways today, it was developed in conjunction with and in support of this, the no longer accepted science of eugenics. And the idea of eugenics was that there is an ideal type of human body, and you could extend that to mind. And to improve the human race, the population needed to be normed to look more like that typical standard person. And that had quite violent implications. Norming would either involve changing people to be more similar to the norm or eliminating them from the population. And so I've I've tried to talk to this to a lot of people about this and they say, yeah, but we have to give up the term normal just because it was used in conjunction with eugenics. And I don't think we need to give it up, but I think it's very helpful to understand its its background and then to also start to interrogate how normalcy or normality is present. I hope we can get to that later about trying to think about where normalcy is present and enforced in the educational space, because that's prim- primarily where I'm where I work. So anyway, that's that's a little bit about normal or typical. The origins of the term neurotypical, as far as I can tell, are actually with a spoof website that was called the Institute for the Study of the Neurologically Typical. And it was, again, part of this early autistic online community where there are a lot of message boards. And this was kind of a public awareness campaign. 
And you can read about it in this article in an amazing open access book that I will provide a link to for the show notes that's called Autistic Community and the Neurodiversity Movement. And in this in this chapter, activist Laura Tishanchik, I think that's how you pronounce her name, Laura Tishanchik, recalled that this spoof project, the Institute for the Study of the Neurologically Typical, was supposed to turn the tables on the dehumanization done to autistic people by autistic researchers. So the fact of coming up with a fake institute kind of mirrored all of the institutes that existed and were popping up on the sort of medicalized study of autism. <clears throat> and so neurotypical in this situation, it doesn't mean, quote, a normal person. It means a satirical idea of, of what a normal person would be. The point being that no such thing is possible, at least outside of the you know violent implications of eugenics. And so I'll I'll tell you a few little details from this project in a second, but based on this, these origins, neurotypical doesn't just mean a, a diagnosis. It means somebody who doesn't fall into the norms of how society believes people should think and think and act and behave. And of course, those norms are ever changing and completely socially constructed. So you can you can actually see a link to the archive site if you go if you go to the book chapter that that I'll link to. But they had a couple of funny FAQs. One of them was, "What is neurotypical?" And then it says, "Neurotypical syndrome is a neurobiological disorder characterized by preoccupation with social concerns, delusions of superiority, and obsession with conformity." <laughs> and this is kind of satirizing some of the less kind common descriptors of what autistic people are like. Also, of course, naming neurotypicality as a syndrome rather than, okay, there's there's neurotypical people out there. Mm. And then the second one being, how common is it? Tragically, as many as 9,625 out of every 10,000 individuals may be neurotypical. This is, of course, also satirizing. Um, I can the, I cannot wait to visit this site. I love that. Yeah. that I love that <laughs> that they can draw such rich humor from such uh, terrible things. Yes, <laughs> sometimes you yeah, just so have this, to laugh. Yeah, yeah, you have to laugh sometimes. I mean, this right. And this this is drawing on the sort of panic inducing messages that were being sent out of tragically how many people are kind of quote stricken with autism per year and turning the tables to say, you know, this. I just gave a presentation yesterday where. I, where I explained it this way. But what if we talked about you the way that you talk about us? What if autistic people talked about the rest of the population the way that we're talked about? It would not feel so good, would it? There's many, there's many other FAQs. Another thing that I often share with people is that this spoof website also had a screener, like a little screening test for to find out if you are neurotypical or not. And if if you go online, you can Google and find all sorts of screeners for different um, forms of neurodivergence. And I, I've all, like I said, I've been evaluated for autism and it, it does involve answering a lot of questions on a questionnaire about like different social situations and how you would react to them. And while you're doing it, you're like, this is truly absurd. Like everybody in the world <laughs> reacts to different situations in different ways, depending on the context. Why, why are my answers on on this, the thing that's going to kind of move the needle on whether I get diagnosed with something. So anyway, they have a fake one <laughs> with questions like, a friend has brought you to a party, what do you do? 
your computer won't start. What do you do? <laughs> Someone hands you the channel changer. What channel do you change the TV set to? Mm. Satirizing these kinds of psychological questionnaires to, to, to just show like, if diagnoses are going to be based on stuff as random and variable as this, then two can play that game. Mm. Well, I would love to have you now move us into, you said you wanted to share a bit about what this tension between <laughs> calling things normal or not is present in and gets reinforced in educational spaces. Yeah. This is often something that I ask other people. So I, I could even talk for a minute or two, and then I could I could try asking you, which is well, once you once you start to think about normals, rather than saying, oh, how do I include neurodivergent students? If instead you start the conversation from thinking about how is normalcy present in my classroom or my institution or my discipline? Um, but, and by that, I mean, who do we believe is the quote, normal student or participant? And how does that person behave? And how is that expectation baked into the way we do things such that there are some people who are experiencing marginalization, struggle, need for accommodations. And I think that that's, that's what neurodiversity asks us to think about rather than, oh, I know that there are some people kind of on the fringe. So I'm going to replace whatever word I used to use for their diagnosis or the experience with neurodivergent and then come up with five strategies to help them, to help, to help support them. When I ask people, how is normalcy present in your field or discipline? It, it really comes quickly <laughs> to them. And I think when I, when I think about faculty development as kind of like my core discipline of the thing I've been doing the longest, I definitely think one element of normalcy that I see is the assumption that faculty, this is very meta, but the assumption that faculty are non-disabled or neurotypical. I mean, I've, I've done quite a bit of work trying to raise awareness about this. I've written a couple articles and then some presentations. It's very rare that you even see mention of the idea of disabled faculty. And most faculty development programs assume that faculty are not disabled. So that, that's my example. I don't know what you consider to be your kind of primary discipline or classroom environment, but I was curious if you have thoughts about this for yourself. There, I've been fascinated, Sarah, during our entire conversation, which is, doesn't surprise me because I also get fascinated by your conversations online. And what I kept thinking back to was when I took sociology classes in my undergraduate, which was more than 30 years ago. And because so much of that is the social norms, you talk about things being socially constructed. And so everything from when I think about a classroom, I, I, I mostly teach these days on Zoom. So there are social norms around cameras on or off. And so I've had, I, I have throughout all, all of the teaching that I've done these past three and a half years, I've really, it's resonated with me that the advocacy to not want to control or police whether people have to have their cameras on or off. And, and so I have, I have embraced that and, and not forced, I put in air quotes because you can't force anybody to do that. But some people think they can, you know, they, they use their power and, and, and uh, coercion. But then I, I sometimes will hear students say, well, I'm so sad because I really want, I literally have had multiple students put this in their comments. I really wanted to turn my camera on because I feel like I can connect better that way, but nobody else had theirs. And so I just recently started my semester mm -hmm. and more than half the students by their own 
I certainly didn't tell anyone. I didn't even invite anyone to turn it on. I just didn't mention it all more than half of them. So I just, when you were talking, that was instantly what I thought of. Because of course, if I'm in a classroom, it's who sits in the front of the room? What Mm. rows do they sit in? And so I'm thinking about physical proximity things in a classroom. But then I was thinking about teaching a lot on Zoom online where some of those similar dynamics come and just how contagious it is. Because I think they... I didn't tell them they had to turn their camera on. I feel like there's plenty of other ways we can connect. So if I'm teaching to a, a screen of of all grayed out screens, that's totally fine by me. We can we can connect in other ways. But just fascinating that this time, more than half, and just I know that social norm is so, so very powerful for all of us. But sometimes we tend to think as faculty, oh, no, we're above that. We don't, we don't get influenced by social norms. It's just those students. Right. Yeah. And what that makes me think about is that I think you've, you've pretty conclusively shown that it's, it depends completely on the context, whether the majority of students will want cameras on, want cameras off. How does that affect others? There's always going to be some people who cannot or will not, for whatever reason, turn it on, and mm-hmm. some people who are like, "This is the only way that I can do it." And so, part of what I, part of what I'm saying is, how do we how do we not let normality, like what creating like a, a majority and a norm, control the classroom environment? And so, so much of it is in just sort of saying these things explicitly, like mm-hmm. you know, the character of our classroom, the the feel of it, the community is not going to be dictated by who has their camera on and who has their camera off. Even so, you can acknowledge that the dynamics of the of the classroom will be changed and, sh- and shaped by it, but we're not going to privilege one over the other. We're going to create lots of participation and connection opportunities uh, for everybody, regardless of whether they have their camera on or off. And yeah, I think that's a really good, that's also a really good example of how when when you ask students to come and in, come into a space and say kind of what works for them camera on or off being a good example of that you can set everybody up for a much more inclusive and kind of affirming experience yeah you you're making me now think about that you were talking about that it's very rare that we see mentions of disabled faculty and that resonated with me so much and and in that, in some of what we're talking about, Sarah, it's reminding me of a conversation from from someone from, I think, eight or nine years ago, looking at so much in higher education, what we're measuring, we think we're measuring learning, or we think we're measuring commitment, or we think, like, we, we ascribe all the wrong things, but what we're really feebly attempting to measure is civil attention. <laughs> yes. And as far as I know, civil attention is going like that's I see some of that with normalcy and the and the norms of like what does it look like to quote unquote pay civil attention? <laughs> and um you speaking about this broad movement, a coalition, that 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 sometimes there's that we're not gonna show up in the ways in which you are attempting to have us show up in these normed I say normed in air quotes, but people can't right, yeah. see my air quotes. But yeah. Anyway, it's such a fascinating thing. What a great question. Yeah. And Another another question that I ask people who I'm I'm speaking with about this is in a lot of ways it's true that only some only some people perhaps a minority identify with neurodivergence as an experience right but I do think that it's possible if we are 
wanting to wanting to be moved or informed by neurodiversity for for everybody to think about what are the ways in which the way that I think and behave when I felt that those were accepted or celebrated in my social context and what are times when I feel like those have been marginalized or sidelined basically not valued based on the social context and I think that's a really useful reflection opportunity also for for especially educators who want to be informed by neuro, by neurodiversity um, is I think really important for us as teachers to recognize how much we have been normed over the course of our educational journeys, especially for those of us in higher education. We have likely pursued multiple degrees to to end up teaching in higher education. And there's so much norming in in higher education, almost to a, <laughs> absurd, an absurd extent. And so I I definitely do think it is, it is important to reflect on your own educational journey and even sometimes sadly, you know, past not taken parts of you parts of yourself that you cut off, learning opportunities that you didn't take because of the the effects of norming in in the educational system. It can bring up a lot of emotions, but I've also worked with people who have said, you know, that I really do feel like that set me up for success to not just kind of continue this cycle of, oh, well that option or that route was never available to me. So I'm not going to make it available to you, if you know mm. what I mean. Oh, yeah. When you were talking about norming, there, this is my such a layperson's example, but there's norming that's the actual analysis tool. But then there's also right. compounded by or exasperated by the forced norming. Only this percentage of people get to have this or this percentage. And then, and then that forced norming, of course, bringing out all the biases and, and all of that. Before Sarah and I get to the recommendations segment, I just wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Text Expander is an integral part to my computing life. All I need to do with Text Expander is set up these very easy to set up what they call little snippets, short snippets that I can type that expand to either longer bodies of text could be a collection of paragraphs, sentences, or sometimes something hard for me to remember, like my work phone number. I use Text Expander all the time. And recently, in fact, we started using it in groups. They have teams where you can have consistent language across an entire team of people and also be able to quickly find what you're looking for. We recently held a bunch of different faculty and academic staff events, and it was so nice to have little Text Expander snippets for all of the frequently asked questions questions we might be receiving during that time. For us, it was a lot of links. So lots of people asking for links for things, or we want to be able to send them out easily. And Text Expander made that great for us to be able to do. So if you head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can take advantage of a 20% off of your subscription and also have a chance to learn more about how Text Expander can help you be able to type less and say more, have the information that you need right at your fingertips and save a whole heck of a lot of time. Thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. And now Sarah and I get to share our recommendations for today. I wanted to share a recommendation today that that doesn't have to do with what we've been talking about, but actually from some episodes back, my colleague David Rhodes was on the show and he recommended a television show that has had three seasons. And 
And he actually had recommended to me, I think maybe even for a year back from there. And so I've heard him say it a bunch of times. And yes, David, I did not listen to you however many <laughs> times you told me. And then ended up getting ill recently. And so I did was looking for television shows and to binge watch. And that was the one that I chose. It's called Happy Valley. It's a Yorkshire-based crime drama that centers on the both the personal and professional life of a police sergeant whose name is Catherine K. Wood. And what how David described the show when he when he was on Teaching in Higher Ed and recommended it, he talked about how for him, it really just allowed him to completely take him into another place. And and it really relieved stress for him because it was all absorbing. And I will tell you, David, you were right. I completely lost all sense. I was just captivated by this drama. And in fact, David is going to be going to visit the place where Happy Valley was filmed. It's just a beautiful, lush, green valley. I mean, it's so, so, so beautiful. So David, we're all looking forward to hearing how that trip goes and getting to see some photographs there. And then the second thing I wanted to recommend is from a totally different place too. <laughs> you can tell I've got sort of randomness going on in my in my recommendations today, Sarah. Speaking of Sarah's, Sarah Elaine Eaton was a presenter in the My Fest which is called Mid-Year Festival, a series of, of ways that people can connect and she offered a conversation about academic integrity and artificial intelligence through the lens of equity. I have long admired and learned from Sarah Elaine Eaton's work, and it was just fun to get to hear her sharing in that context. So some of it is her presenting, and then there are some people offering comments and questions on the latter half of the video. And so I'll be posting a link to that video for today's recommendations and also to the Happy Valley for anyone who wants to completely go away in your mind to another place for a bit. And Sarah, I'm going to pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend today. Well, thank you. Okay, so I figured first I'll do some place-based recommendations because I, I know your listeners are from all over, including North America, but probably even even not in North America. But okay, so I, I live in Connecticut. So I want to offer two Connecticut-based place recommendations um, in case you are here or driving through or passing through. So I want to recommend Possible Futures bookspace in New Haven. It's a kind of new bookstore, but it's not just a store. It's also like a community space that focuses on writers of color, queer writers, and is also just like an amazing community place for kids to hang out. They have a great dog in there. And they <laughs> also that. are kind of sponsoring or providing space for the first, I think, first mural of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the abolitionist writer and professor who is from New Haven. Also, Connecticut, if you happen to be traveling through, I want to recommend Hammonasset State Park, which is a beach on the Long Island Sound, but kind of getting close to the Atlantic Ocean. It's this really cool place with a kind of peninsula that juts out from the regular shoreline of Connecticut. So it feels it feels like you're kind of far away. And I think it's free for Connecticut plates and a very low charge for other licensed plates. And then my other recommendation is actually this blog post that I've read and recommended before, but I keep coming back to it and I'll give it to Bonnie to put in the show notes. It's called On Plain Language by Kelsey Acton, and it's on the Critical Design Lab website. And it just it just talks about how oftentimes in lots of fields and especially academia, we'd cherish our jargon and our specific terms and 
what would it look like to really commit to using as plain and accessible language as possible? And the author even goes into like, well, what's lost also when you stop using your jargon? Sometimes that can be difficult, but to really think about the ways that more people can be brought into a conversation by using plain language is something that I'm always trying to do better with. And I think that this blog post just really spells it out really well. So I want to recommend that to everyone as well. That looks so, that sounds so good. In the last 48 hours, we've had conversations where I work about leaving off modifiers. That mm. uh, when, one case was the problematic use of at-risk students. And there's an article <laughs> that I read where, what if we just said students? <laughs> why, why do we need this? Why do we need this yeah. modifier there? And then an, a colleague had sent in about some sort of a I actually still have to figure out what it was, but some sort of a form or something that gets filled out or evaluation. And the use was a modifier saying minimum standards. And they're like, why does the word minimum need to be there? Why not just standards or expectations? So this sounds like a, a really good thought piece. To, and especially, Sarah, you keep coming back to it. It must be really powerful. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And now I just yeah. want to go to Connecticut. So that's... Yeah, you should come to Connecticut. <laughs> Everybody can come and I'll... I'll give you coffee or your drink of choice on my my front porch. Oh, that sounds lovely. That sounds lovely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to come on. And I was so nice when I reached out to you because I was trying to introduce myself and you're like, oh, I already know your podcast. So I'm so glad we got to have today's conversation and just that um, you're so generous and, and um, such a person able to invest in these necessary conversations. Thank you so much for your time and generosity yeah. today. Thank you, Bonnie. It was, it was a real honor for me as well. Thanks once again to Sarah Silverman for coming on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. If you've yet to sign up for the emails from me once a week, They'll come into your inbox. They will have the most recent show notes, so you don't have to remember to go look them up. And you also will be able to get other resources that don't show up on the normal show notes. So head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.